Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show. No Jared Mack today. He is traveling home uh, from Boston back to, to Eugene. Um, spent some time with his family for the holidays. So it's just us two, Eric. Um, opportunity for you and I to kind of look at this roster going into the 2022 offseason for Oregon Duck football and we're going to discuss a lot of the things that we're excited about um, or looked at as a positive for this roster and make, make no mistake. This is not going to be just a sunshine pumping view. We will look at the negatives. We're going to save that for a later podcast here this week. Um, but this is just kind of the strengths of the roster as it's built currently. And we should know Eric that, Hey, this, this could change. Some of our opinions probably will change because as of this morning, before we even did this podcast, Robbie Ashford officially announced his departure. We knew it was coming, um, but it's officially in now. He's in the portal. He's, he's going to another school. And so some of these positives could change here in six weeks, eight weeks. And some of the negatives that we'll talk about in a, in a future episode – could get rectified and could become positives. So um, it is, I think that's what's first and foremost about college football now is much like basketball has become football feels like it's ever evolving. It's, it's never going to stop changing. So we're, I mean, and, and I will note that I know in past years, there's been this period of time where there's been transfers and stuff like that. It really feels heightened right now though. You look at the portal and it seems like every day there are like, multiple big names entering it, whether it yeah. be Williams, whether it be an Oregon player like Robbie Ashford. And I and, and Oregon obviously is still awaiting some decisions from players NFL futures that will, yep. you know, determine some of this. So like so much is in under construction almost right now, just because of the way college football has kind of played out. And I don't hate it. This is kind of almost the free agency period, if you will, of of, of college football. And that's gonna carry basically into spring ball. Um because you're gonna and because by the time spring starts, you want to know who's on your team. You want to have a good idea of that. And then guess what, Matt? Right after spring ends, there's going to be kind of another season of this yep. where players look up at the depth chart on their teams and maybe they didn't have a good spring game or maybe somebody else had a really good spring game and they realize, well, maybe I'm not going to be the starter or maybe my position isn't quite as safe as I thought or maybe this new coaching staff and I don't see eye to eye. These are all obviously hypotheticals, but this is going to continue to play out. So I think you know, we're going to have a pretty good idea of what the team looks like by the time spring ball starts in a couple of months. But even after that, there's going to be more kind of, uh, I guess, turnover and, and, and undeterminedness coming out of it. So it's a weird period of time. We are going to run through the position groups. I, I feel, honestly, I don't know how, if we just want to jump in on offense here. Yeah. I feel pretty good about every position on offense besides quarterback and, and I guess just the depth at receiver. Like, I feel like Oregon's like pretty loaded. Otherwise, like at running back, I know we're still waiting to see what Travis Dye and CJ Verdell decide to do. Both have NFL decisions to make. Both could come back. Both could go pro. I'm guessing it's probably like a one or the other kind of thing. I would imagine one of those guys stays, but that's just conjecture more than anything else. Um, but that position I feel good about almost regardless of the outcome there. Because even if it is both of them leaving and the room is Byron Cardwell as your top running back, I, I think he's proven he could probably manage that pretty successfully. Um, so I don't have a ton of questions at running back. Um, I feel really good about this offensive line, Matt. Like this is, this is kind of what you want, which is the continuity now of it's going to be basically three straight years. I know George Moore is gone finally after his seventh year of college football, <laughs> but everything else is back, and that includes five guys that had started at least eight games this year, most of which started multiple games in 2020. Um, you know, this is a group that's coming back to protect probably be Bo Nix to start the season. And it's one that I feel pretty good about. You've got guys who are all conference caliber players. I thought getting TJ Bass back was huge. Yeah. Team all conference player. I thought getting Alex Forsythe, we knew going into the year he would return. That was significant. Ryan Walk being able to have hopefully a full season healthy now. Um, I thought he played fantastic last year. And then you've got Stephen Jones and, and Malasala Amavailalu who are, also very capable on that right side, not to mention a couple of veterans, I shouldn't say veterans, but kind of depth pieces with Jackson Powers Johnson and Dawson Jaramillo. Like, I feel like you're seven deep on the offensive line, and that's a situation you don't normally have. And, and honestly, the last time they did have that kind of experience and depth was that 2019 season 
where you had that whole crew coming back for kind of one last hurrah. And that was a really, really productive year for that offensive line. So I know it doesn't have the star power of 19 with Penny Sewell at left tackle, but I feel like this offensive line in 2022 has the makings of a really good unit that, that will, I think, be kind of the key cog here up front for Oregon in offensively, at least in 22. New, new offense, new quarterback, um, potentially new running back. Uh, you're going to have new receivers from what you started with in 2021. And I think all three of those position groups uh, are severely impacted by the play at quarterback. And so it's huge for Dan Lanning, offensive coordinator Kenny Dillingham, to have its basically entire offensive line back. That that could – theoretically jumpstart the the development of the Dillingham offense a, a, a couple of steps um, quicker than expected because yes, they, these guys still have to learn a new offense and they have to learn the terminology and, and all of that still comes with it, but they know what it's like playing together. They know what it's like to play at the highest level and they're really good. I mean, I, I'm with you, Eric. There prob- there isn't a first-round guy like Penesua was in 2019. But I think you go across the board and you look at your four seniors, and I think you could make a strong case that all four of them will get drafted in the 2023 NFL draft. And I think Stephen Jones is a guy who's come back and he's playing. He said he will be playing one more season and indicating he's going to go pro. Um, and I think he will also hear his name get called in 2023. So I look at Oregon's offensive line, and this is probably my biggest, I guess, excitement or positive outlook yeah. to this roster and the entire team um, is the offensive line. Oregon should have one of the best offensive lines in the country. I think they will contend to be you know, the best offensive line in the Pac-12. Um, the talent is there for that. Um, also, Eric, I, I think this is one where we could see some some changes here at running back. We don't know the status of C.J. Verdell. We don't know the status of Travis Dyer. Are they coming back for what would be Verdell's sixth year and Dye's fifth year? Um, or are they both going pro? Or is one of them coming back and the other going pro? Um, we don't know the status of that as of Wednesday morning. Um but even if they do go pro, both of them, and Oregon loses both, I still think you can look at this position group in a, in a positive manner because Byron Cardwell has shown when he gets carries, he's good. Um, and when he gets a, a good, healthy dose of carries, he's very good. Um, and so I, I have no doubt in my mind that he is capable, if both Die and Verdell go off to the NFL – that Cardwell can be the workhorse. And I think we saw some positive numbers from Seven McGee if he has to fill in at running back a little bit there. Um, Trey Benson is, is a guy that's a lot of optimism within the program um, the last couple of seasons. And then Sean Dollars will be back. He, he will be healthy, knock on wood, uh, for spring football, and a guy that was expected to be basically what Byron Cardwell was this season. Um, the third running back. And so I think you look at those three guys and, and you, you, you say you've got a bonafide number one. You've got a couple options that can emerge as your number two. Things are still looking up. And if one or if both of Di and Verdell come back, this position group all, all of a sudden becomes one of the better units in the country again. And I, I think in particular with Di, this is one where we don't know what his status is. But from a selfish reason, I hope he comes back because I think he could really evolve into someone who maybe has close to 2,000 all-purpose yards if Oregon can compete for a Pac-12 championship and make another bowl game. He wasn't far off this year. He yeah. finished just under 1,800. Um, you know, and, and honestly, like, this is a guy who's – I just wrote about it on DuckTerritory.com on Tuesday. You look at his career achievements and it's – it's a weird career because he's been here four years, but he's only started like 23 games. Yeah. But he's he's like he's up on a lot of the career lists. And if he were to come back, he would be assured to finish third all time. This is how crazy it is with Travis Dye. He would be third all time in career rushing yards, and he'd be like top five all time in career all purpose yards. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, I mean, and he's already, I think, sixth in yards per carry in a career. He's 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 already kind of put his his stamp on it. So like, regardless of what he does, Travis Dye will be looked back at as I think uh, a player. And it's kind of funny because I was writing about this. Think about where what the fan perception of what he was in nineteen and even parts of twenty twenty, where I think a lot of people were. Kind of like he's not big enough to run between the tackles. He doesn't wear gloves, so he fumbles it. I mean, there's a lot of Travis Dye kind of uncertainty, and I think he's really kind of removed any question about his capabilities um, and his position at Oregon. I know he's never going to be the biggest, most flashy running back, but he's just so incredibly productive. Here's a hypothetical about running back, Matt. I was just thinking of. Let's say both Dye and Verdell do go pro or just aren't on the team. Does Oregon look into the portal at running back? I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying that they're the cupboard's bare because I think we both like Byron Cardwell. Yes. There's just so much uncertainty if that's the case because you would go, okay, we have no idea really what Sean Dollars or Trey Benson are based upon on-field results. And Seven McGee looked maybe a little bit more, I don't want to say comfortable, but he certainly didn't look bad playing a little bit of slot receiver at the end of the season. Like with your Oregon, I mean, let's say those two veteran guys do go, do you take a peek at the portal or do you feel like let's bet on We've got, and I should note because they also haven't added anybody from a prep recruit in 2022. So, um, you know, they are kind of skipping a year. Like, would you would you look to add somebody? Or do you feel pretty good regardless of how this plays out at running back? Um, I, I think it maybe could depend upon if if Seven McGee, if they have the depth at receiver to move him over mm-hmm. to running back, then I feel good. Um, you have two power backs in Cardwell and Benson, and you have two – speed type guys and dollars and McGee. And I don't know if dollars dollars is kind of just your all purpose, you know, kind of can be a power guy, can be a speed guy, just you're, you're very balanced guy. Um, obviously McGee is not a downhill physical runner, um, more of an open space type guy. So I, I would think with those four, you would be good. Um, so it kind of depends upon what they could do at receiver. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, I think you and I agree that there is concerns at receiver just from a numbers perspective um, on the offensive side of the football. Um, I will say, though, Eric, so I, I guess to pivot off of that question, I am super excited, though, with McGee at receiver. I am super excited about a core group of four guys, Hudson, Thornton, Franklin, and then McGee. Now you throw in Isaiah Brevard. Um, and look, do I, I think we have to kind of consider Isaiah Crocker in that mix as well as some yeah. excitement because he hasn't played a ton in his first three seasons at Oregon. Um, but this last year when he got in late November and played against Oregon State, played against uh, Utah again, played in the Alamo Bowl, he produced. And you kind of wonder, like, what was holding him back? Because he has, I'm not going to say he's been gangbusters, but he's more than held his own in the limited run that he got at the end of 2021. So why was he not playing earlier? So I, I kind of want to throw him in there as well. Oh, I definitely do. In fact, I think I feel probably better about what a product you have from Crocker than McGee at this point, just because but Crocker's produced a little better at the end of the year. And yeah. I, I, I know I'm not trying to minimize me because I'm really excited about what seven can do as a return guy and just kind of as a gadget play guy who you get him out in space, you get him the ball, you let him go. I think this will be, it'll be, I'd be very curious to see how Kenny Dillingham uses him because I think you've got like, look put it this way. Dillingham's creativity as an offensive play caller and play design guy will kind of, I think will be almost best illustrated by how you use a guy like seven McGee who is such a utility kind of knife guy. You can use him in a variety of ways, um, get him out in space. He can come out of the backfield if you want to, you know, he's a perfect guy, like a jet, you know, a jet sweep kind of thing. So I'd be curious to see how he's utilized creatively um, this year. But yeah, I, I think Crocker, like <laughs> that's one of the more bizarre kind of end of season, um, I guess, developments, because this is a guy who we had, I mean, basically everybody covering the team. I'm not trying to say we, we thought he stank, but we kind of were like, you don't really expect anything from this guy at this point, because he'd been here four years and hadn't played. And yet, at the end of the season, Matt, like we said, we said a couple times, he produced. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think you definitely include him in that conversation. And again, we're on Friday. We're going to get the things we're more concerned about. Obviously, at receiver, there's plenty, plenty of stuff. <laughs> um, and I do, by the way, 
you made a good point, I think, about some of the running back kind of depth stuff comes down to what do you do with Seven McGee? Is he playing yes. receiver? Is he playing running back? There was no clarity on the way out from the previous staff. And obviously that doesn't really mean much anyway because the current staff will determine how they want to use him. They're not going to take the advice of a bunch of outgoing coaches and, and use that. In, in, and that's kind of set in stone. Obviously they're going to have their own kind of spin on this. But no, I'm, I'm in agreement with with kind of the Seven thing probably has some – there's some shakeup based upon how you choose to use him if that's receiver or running back with how you – I think progress from a personnel perspective, but yeah, if we're, let's just stick on running wide receiver for a moment here. I'm, I wrote about it after the Alamo bowl. I think Oregon has three potential star receivers at, in Troy Franklin and Dante Thornton and Chris Hudson. And now it's what can Oregon do? And like we said earlier, a lot of this is going to come down to quarterback. What can Oregon do to, to maximize that? I mean, I think, you know, I think it's funny. You look back at the last four or five years of Oregon football and in 2018, the receiving core was just brutal. I mean, it was Dylan Mitchell and, and basically nothing else. And, you know, to credit to Justin Herbert and Mitchell for having a fantastic year, kind of throwing the ball around to each other. In 19, it kind of came together more. You started seeing some depth. And then in 2020 and 21, the depth was really kind of hailed as being special. And I'll be honest, because of poor play at quarterback, we never really got an idea of how good that group was, if I'm being totally honest, because I don't think Tyler Shuck or Anthony Brown ever maximized some of this talent at wide receiver. Sure, we saw glimpses of it. I thought Devin Williams showed at the end of the season really well. I'm hopeful and trying to be optimistic because I think Oregon has some legit dudes right now at receiver. Like, I think their top three is competitive with most in the country. Um, it, now it's just a matter of can you actually kind of maximize that? Can you showcase that in your offense? And I will be very curious. Again, I mentioned, you know, kind of, I guess, assessing some of Dillingham's capabilities as an offensive coordinator around how they use McGee. I think the same thing is obviously going to come out with how they maximize their receivers because they have guys to contend with. I mean, we saw it firsthand against Oklahoma, against, you know, top-tier talent that Oregon can beat those guys deep. Oregon has the speed on the outside now to do that. How are they able to accomplish that with Bo Nix? How are they able to accomplish that with whoever's at quarterback? That's going to be a big thing for me because I'm really excited by what you've got at receiver. But I'll also say, Matt, we were really excited about this receiver car going into 20. Yes. And by all indications, it was kind of a disappointing season and maybe not entirely their fault. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I We said that at the beginning, that it was hard to count on true freshman receivers um, to give you starter reps across the board. Um, it's one thing if one guy kind of emerges and is kind of your number two or your maybe maybe rare instance where he's your number one more often not than your than your number three guy. But it's really rare, extremely rare to see guys go across the board freshmen and and produce big numbers. And so that goes into now 2022 where these guys now are seasoned a little bit. And we saw what happened at the end of the year with the games against Utah and the games in the game against um, Oklahoma. I, I think you have to be excited about what Troy Franklin and Dante Thornton, Isaiah Bravar, Chris Hudson, and Isaiah Crocker and seven McGee, what this group could do. Um, I, I agree with you that at the top, they've got five guys that feel like are legitimate PAC 12 players. They've got a couple of them. I think Hudson and probably Franklin are guys who could emerge as superstars um, at the conference level. And Thornton's kind of almost there as well, in my eyes. If you give him the, the reps and if you give him the number of, of targets that he should get as a primary guy. Um, and we'll go into more of this detail, but it's what's behind those, those guys is what will probably ultimately decide how good this position group is. But from a, from a, Top-level perspective, I would feel good about this is your main five guys. This is this is a good group. Um, you could argue maybe going out and finding one more, um, but I, I, I think you're good if this is your top five. Um, defensively, Eric, let's, I, let's shift over to defense here for a second. And Kayvon Thibodeau is gone, and we've seen Verone McKinley now leave. He is declared for the NFL draft. DJ James, Kale Wright are also gone. DJ James transferred. Kale Wright went went pro. 
Jason Jones has transferred as well. And yet I kind of still feel like this defense is going to be really good. Um, well, I, I think you combine the Dan Lanning effect with the talent on hand. They have questions, no doubt about it. But I think in a couple key areas, they are elite. And that starts up front along the defensive line. Oregon brings back the two best interior defensive linemen, according to Pro Football Focus, in the Pac-12, in Popo Amave and Brandon Dorless. And I think getting both of those guys back was astronomical in setting the tone for the entire defense in 2022. And then you combine those two players with Noah Sewell and knock on wood, knocking on wood here, a healthy Justin flow. And you have probably two of the four best linebackers in the conference while also returning the two highest graded interior defensive linemen in the conference. That, that is a, that is a recipe for how you, you put together a very good defense. It's such a weird defense is such a weird deal. Cause there are some groups and areas I feel so good about. And you just named two of them. The other one I feel really good about is safety. And yeah. then there's a corner, which I, you know, we're we'll we're talking about that almost exclusively on Friday on our question mark show. Cause I've got a lot of concerns there, but I'm with you. The, I think the returns of Dorless and Amavai are very, very, under, I think have kind of gone under the radar a little bit. I mean, very I much. Some Oregon fans have been really excited about it as they should be, because this is, this is huge. And, and for Dan Lanning to step in and not have to, like, there was a moment there where I think we both thought, could both these guys be gone? And what happens if that's the case? Because, and this is where I guess I have concerns up front, is the depth is not great behind these guys. And we saw that in the bowl game. If you had to move over Jackson Powers Johnson to play, and you had, you know, Suave Podi and Maciel Feet, or Maciel Fisi, which are his name, sorry. Um, <laughs> we had those guys playing a ton of snaps who aren't guys who are expected to at that point in the season. Um Depth is still a concern, but man, having those two guys back is huge. I think because of some of the injuries this last year at linebacker, I think people have probably more question marks than they should because just think about what Justin Flo looked like against Fresno State. And if he's healthy, and I have a question, and again, we should knock on all the wood because it's now been two years where he's played a combined probably, I don't know, one and half games basically i mean he's barely played since coming here if he can be healthy this is something special i i'm 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 still bummed out we missed out on a full season of a justin flow noah sewell Kayvon Thibodeau kind of front seven group and what that looked like with those kind of athletes at the second level um but two or three is not bad and that's what oregon has and i'm really encouraged and excited to see kind of what this looks like collectively with those two guys in the middle and don't forget mace foon is back you know, I mean, he's a guy who's, I think, not quite to the level of these other players we're talking about, but a very capable player. And I'm not going to be surprised if he sticks around for a couple more years, if he's not like an all-conference caliber guy by the end. Probably not a first-team player, but somebody who's at least receiving that kind of consideration. He's that kind of a player. And then you've got a bunch of guys on that edge spot. No one's going to be Kayvon Thibodeau. You're not going to replace it. But you've got a lot of guys that I kind of have my eye on, who I'm encouraged by. And Braden Swinson has had moments. Um, yeah. What are the... DJ Johnson, is he a tight end to see a defensive lineman? If he's a, is he, if he plays a little edge, um, I think it's called a jack in, in Lanning's defense. Like, that could be – I think that's a fit. I'd be curious to see what they choose to do with him. And then I still like Trevin Maai quite a bit. I think, yeah. he's, I think he's a really good young player, especially on rundowns. He has his fair share of moments where he's kind of confused. I think he he was caught off sides against the, the Alamo Bowl because <laughs> – he ran off the field, even though he was the 11th player, and then ran across the, the line of scrimmage. And then I think he also had a play in the middle of the season, I forget which week, where he was – same kind of thing, where he thought he wasn't supposed to play and then ran back on the field last moment and actually made the tackle. I think that was against, like, Arizona or Stony Brook. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of guys on the edge I'm excited about. But, you know, I think the front seven I actually feel pretty decent about. You yeah. know, it's just depth. Again, it's kind of the same thing we talked about at receiver, except for the top-tier guys – both that defensive line and linebacker, obviously, are a little bit more. Um, I guess they've had a lot more production and are kind of more well-known commodities. You've got a bunch of all-conference caliber guys there. We're at receiver. We think the potential is there. Those front seven guys have already shown it. So, yeah, I think you feel really good about your front seven if you're Dan Lanning walking into this. Um, I think you have clear concerns in the secondary, which we'll get to on Friday. But, like, man, like I, 
this is this is if you're Dan Landing, you're definitely not walking into a cupboard being bare sort of situation, and that's really good for him to kind of, I think, hit the ground running. I think it's important he has success pretty immediately, especially his defense is good because he's coming out here pretty unproven in terms of a head coaching perspective, and if he comes out and the defense is not very good, there's going to be a lot of question marks about that. And the perception is going to be, okay, well, maybe that was just a Kirby Smart effect at Georgia and his landing really all he's cut out for, and that has impacts on the trail, et cetera. I don't think he's going to have any issues with talent. You know, it's going to come down to what he could do from coaching it up and scheming it, um, because I think you've got in place a front seven that can be extremely competitive in this conference. We should also note, I think, Eric, that the the three four defense under Dan Lanning, I think, is going to present better opportunities for Mace Funa and Adrian Jackson to fit better into into a position. It felt like in the Tim DeRuiter defense, both Funa and Jackson were kind of pigeonholed into what position that they could play with the scheme and some of the roster talent around them. Like it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest, Eric, if we see. Funa um, line up more as what would traditionally be like a defensive end. Um, yeah. Type type of guy. And Adrian Jackson um, kind of shift more towards the linebacker position than what he was playing um, as a pass rusher this past year. Um, I, I, I just, I, I, I think that's another positive. These two guys are going to, are going to have a better chance to fit positionally within this defense, but I'm with you too about um, Trevin Maai. I, I think this is a guy that we see this every you know, four or five years, um, a guy kind of slowly work his way up the depth chart. And then by the time he's a junior, sometimes by the time he's a senior, he looks like an all conference potential NFL player. You know, I, I think some guys that, um, fit that narrative that that have played at Oregon previously, especially on defense. Yeah. Brady Breeze is one that, you know, struggled to, to find the field early as a sophomore, junior kind of got into a position. And then at the end of the year, junior year, he exploded. And now he's, he's on an NFL roster. Um, I think Bryson Young is another one um, that kind of did that. And I believe Bryson's with the Falcons right now. So I think Trevin Maai is kind of along that trajectory where this season in limited moments, he got in there and he played well. And 2021 is going to be a year for him where maybe he goes from being, excuse me, a spot position player to a rotational guy. And then in 2023 is when he becomes a full-time starter. Maybe it, maybe it happens now, I, but I just, I keep going back to the story that you wrote couple years ago on duckterritory.com when you spoke with his high school coach mm-hmm. of what was it like a 4-4-40 or 4-5-40 for a defensive end outside linebacker type he's just a physical freak athlete and it feels like he's now getting into where he's at the weight now he needs to be and his body's adjusted to it and now it's just reacting and playing football trying to remember what the mark was, Matt, but I think it was his shuttle, which was like, yes. which his coach said was the fastest he'd ever seen from a defensive player, like regardless of, well, front seven guy. It was like the fastest front seven guy he'd ever coached. I'd have to go back and look at that story. It might have even been like the best on the team or, you know, up there. With, and then he was at a school that had some some pretty good talent. So, no, I, I, I think Trevin's really intriguing, and I'm happy we're spending some time talking about him. Um Maybe that's a good transition into talking about some of the guys in the secondary we're excited about. And another guy that was kind of forced to play. We talk about, you know, you talk about kind of guys taking some time. This guy did not have that luxury. He was forced yeah. to play a lot this year. And that was Jeffrey Bossa. And I'm, yeah. there might not be a player on this defense that I'm more, like, I guess, just curious to see what the role is because. He showed at inside linebacker at, at will the back half of that season, really the last two thirds of the season. He's a very good football player. I thought he played better than anyone on defense in the Alamo Bowl. He was all over the place. You saw some of that speed in the open field. There's a couple times where, you know, Oklahoma had some of their athletic freaks, some of those speed guys kind of out in space, and he was able to run with them and bring them down. Um, I, I think he is a very, very intriguing young player. And the fact that he's a freshman, you've got two to three years of runway ahead of you to kind of whatever you want to turn him into. And I could see – I really could see him being a really high-end – 
linebacker, if you say, hey, we're going to put 15 more pounds on you, and now you're playing, you know, 230, 235, I could see him being a really good player there. I could see him shifting, to, you know, to play kind of a hybrid nickel role. I could see him playing deep safety and, you know, and, and working. I could see all of those situations playing out fine and maybe him being a star player in any of those spots. I think he's that kind of a talent. But it, to me, it's just – it's going to be really interesting to see how they employ him because I think his upside is – Aside from a Noah Sewell and, and maybe aside from a Justin Flo, like about as high as anyone on this defense, just because he's got those physical tools and um, and we saw him play at such a high level and in, in, in a position he hadn't been expected to play. I, I think that's one of the more commendable seasons we've seen from a true freshman that he came in. He was a he was a star, one of the better players on an Oregon defense at a position he was not expected to play as like an 18 year old true freshman. That's pretty special. And you kind of saw the development as a leader. I thought it was notable. He was, you know, one of the few guys that were speaking with media at the end of the season, you know, the Alamo bowl pregame thing, what they had three defensive players. He was one of the players they brought out. These are kind of things that you don't do for guys that you have any qualms or questions about. I think pretty clearly the outgoing staff and I'm sure the incoming staff see him as a focal point and a leader. So where does he fit in? I mean, I'm really interested to see. And and the other part is now that Verona is gone, we had, a, I think, a, a decent amount of this conversation on our, our, win, our Monday mailbag show, so we won't go through all of it. But there's some interesting dynamics with these safeties because yeah. I think you have three really good big-body athletes yep. in, in Bossa, Hill, and Bennett Williams now, and you got to juggle and figure out how those guys all fit. And you have Steve Stevens, who I think Matt – kind of course corrected properly the last podcast I was overlooking him a little bit I still think it's going to be a hard, big conversation you know a big big competition for him to retain his job but he was not a, he was a very serviceable player when he was playing this last season he started the first eight games of the year before injury he's in the mix so Oregon has a wealth of options at safety and a hybrid kind of position which I do know that Landing has used a star in the past which is a, the same kind of role that we just saw Jamal Hill and, and Bennett Williams play this last year I'm really curious to see I, and I'm I have no doubts whatever they put out in the field is going to be a really, really productive you know, group in the secondary. You know, I still have concerns at corner, but safety and, and kind of those three body types, I think you've got some potential really good players. And I'm just going to be curious to see how they use those guys. And, and maybe it's as simple as Steve plays more on passing downs and you move Jamal from the back end. But when you're on rundowns, you could play three big kind of 210, 220 pound guys that can be good and run support, but also effective against the pass. So there's some fun author- I guess some fun um, personnel kind of groupings you could mix and match with with this group. And I, I think that, to me, honestly, defensively is one of the things I'm more excited about. I think you have to decide um, where Jeffrey Bassa plays first before you know who starts at safety. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm with you, Eric. I, I almost think, whether it's at linebacker or whether it's at safety, I think he has to play. Like – I think it's a start. Yeah. Like he and that's sorry, that's what I meant. He 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 has to start. Like he has turned himself into, I think, a bona fide potential first team all pack to player in 2022. And someone that NFL scouts are probably gonna be drooling over. Um, and then after you figure out where Bossa plays, then you kind of figure out how it, everything else shakes out. And maybe this gives you kind of that safety valve with Justin Flo and the injury is if you keep Bossa at linebacker and you start Noah Sewell, you start Jeffrey Bossa, and then Flo is kind of the third guy that rotates in at linebacker. And then you've got Keith Brown and Jackson LaDuke as your four and five guys. And then that doesn't really force you to have to play Devin Jackson or Harrison Taggart, who are freshman incoming linebackers. Um, and, and unless they're ready, unless they need to play. Right. So I, I almost kind of think you you keep Bossa at linebacker because then that makes things clear at safety. Bennett Williams is one. I think Jamal Hill is probably uh, another one. And then Steve Stevens and Damon David um, are, are battle it out maybe for that third spot uh, at, at safety. And then it kind of figures everything else out for you. Um Cornerback is, is I think you're good with Triquez and Devontae Manning as your two primary guys. You're adding Jalil Tucker. Uh, Devontae Dickerson was a guy that played quite a bit this season. And then Darian Barkins and Jalen Davies are, are two promising young freshmen. 
Um, but I think everything in the backfield starts with what do you do with Bossa? And then it kind of trickles out from there. Um, real quick, Eric, I, I was running through the list here on defense. And I think there's at least eight guys that I look at and say, he's defensive, he's definitively going to be in the NFL or he's got a really good chance to make a roster on this defense. I think that's kind of surprising. And tell me if I'm wrong here. Here are the names. Popo Omave and Brandon Dorless and Braden Swinson along the defensive line. And then you've got uh, Noah Sewell and Justin Flo at linebacker that puts you at five. And then at safety, Bennett Williams, Jamal Hill, and Jeffrey Bossel. Those three. That's eight guys. I, I think you legitimately have eight players on this defense that have some level of NFL attention right now. And there could be more that that evolve. And we didn't mention Mace Funa. Um, we didn't mention Keon Ware Hudson or Christian Williams. Um, I, I, I really think this defense is truly loaded. It doesn't have maybe the cachet of a Kayvon Thibodeau, but a Noah Sewell is pretty close. And Justin Flo, in the one game that we saw him play, is pretty darn close to that level as well. So – it doesn't have the, the superstar mentality that, that Kayvon has, but it's still pretty loaded in my eyes. I think the eight number is good. I probably would substitute Funa for Swinson just in my confidence right now, but that's just because we haven't seen a ton. I mean, I, I love Braden, Braden Swinson. I'll be clear on that. I'm not, but Funa is probably more proven at this point. Swinson maybe, I think Swinson has probably the higher upside, but I kind of, I'm another guy. I'm just curious to see how they use because Matt, you, you kind of touched on it earlier. The, some of the restructuring from a landing schematic defense from what we saw from Tim DeRuder and even Andy Ablos before that. How do you use some of these edge guys? Swinson could be a guy maybe similar to Mace Spoon and maybe his hands in the dirt a little bit more. How does that change how he competes? Um, there's a bunch of guys in the front seven. Um, but to, to touch base again on on the corner stuff, I, I know we're, we're going to talk more on things that concern us later. I, I just think defensively, if there's one position you really I, – I, I, I'm not as sold on you that you've got two starters there. I could definitely see the value in adding a a portal guy to come in and start at one of those corner spots. I, sure. think, I think both Manning and Bridges are high upside players. I also think the most recent evidence we saw against Oklahoma, who, by the way, I, that's hard to try to measure what you've got at a position against a team that good at that receiver position. They did not, you know, pass with flying colors to put it lightly. They were, they were pretty spotty and, you're looking at a conference that's going to have some pretty darn good returning quarterbacks. And I know you're losing some of the top receivers, but should be a pretty solid conference from a passing game perspective. Again, I didn't think the quarterback play was that good in the conference this year, but the good thing is a lot of these guys are back. Hopefully they're better. Um, I, 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 but I do think Oregon, certainly that's the, that's the, that, if we're just looking at the defense, the more we talk all this through, I feel better kind of having gone through this conversation with Matt about every position besides corner. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, I think you've got. I mean, the fact that you're having a conversation about Bassa and and Flo at an inside spot, and the depth you mentioned. I mean, I, I was going to mention that before. The fact that you're talking about four or five guys at inside deep that I think are all pretty good players, kind of proven commodities. That's such a that's such a thing that Oregon didn't have this year. That's such a, a an important complement to the whole thing. Um, I feel really good about everything besides corner on defense. You know, it's kind of similar to offense where you've got. A lot of positions you feel really good about, but there's a spot or two here where you have some concerns, and we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. That's that. Those are the positions where the next month or two are going to be, I think, the most telling because Oregon undoubtedly needs to add people at corner, whether it be re, uh, you know, reengaging with Jaleel Florence and hopefully getting him signed. That's another big time corner prospect from the same high school as Jaleel Tucker, close friend of his. If that works out, that's another huge addition. And then I still think. I think I'd poke around the portal for a little bit and at least add one guy there to just have a, maybe somebody who's got some starting experience because I, I'm a little wary of those other two guys, but we'll get more into that on Friday's show. Um, what game did, did Jeffrey Bossa move like permanently full-time into the starting lineup? Oh boy. Per- permanently into the starting lineup. Was it Washington? No, it was, he was starting before. Um, Washington was his big coming out party because he played really, really well. Um, maybe it was, was it at, right around Cal, maybe? Cal, after Cal? I don't know. You could pull up the I – mean, I, I might be able to pull it up for you. Um, 
one second. I got the so Boss's first start came against Cal and he started the rest of the season. Okay. So in those nine games that he played, um I'm doing some quick math here. He had 45 tackles in those nine games that he started. You equate you that out to the 14 games that Oregon played, and he had 70 tackles on the season and is third on the team in total tackles. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was already fifth um, on the team with 48 total tackles. I I, I think he is a superstar in the making. Um and this was playing a position that he was learning on the fly. Now, if you keep him at linebacker, he's going to have an entire spring to adjust and to learn and to develop at that spot. I, I, I just have a very hard time. I know he came to safety. I know Murray Cristobal said multiple times that he wanted to play safety um, when he showed up and he asked to play safety in 2022. I asked him um, leading up to the the – Alamo Bowl game, just his thoughts on the position and the success he had at linebacker. And he didn't rule it out. He came out and said that basically he's focused on the year. He'll do whatever it takes for the team to win. He just wants to play. Um, I think was paraphrasing along the lines of what he said. Right. Um, I, I, I just think there's a very strong case to be made. He fits perfectly with Noah Sewell. Um, he's, He's better in pass coverage. I, I just think he's he's a superstar in the making for Oregon. Um, and Oregon's got multiple guys on defense that I think could really become superstars, uh, a Pac-12 or a national level. Um, let's close up shop with this, special teams. I think, yes, they, took, good. Happy. I think they took a big step um, in 2021 from where they were the last couple of seasons. Camden Lewis – has turned into the ever-dependable Cam- Camden Lewis. Um, he had a couple slides against Utah, but against anybody else, he didn't miss. Um, and I think Tom Snee has turned into a very good punter for Oregon. And then Carson Battles, I, I don't think there was one bad snap the whole game from from a long snapping perspective, whether that's punts or field goals. Um, I, I, I think from those three groups – three position groups, Oregon is in a very good spot. And now it becomes, who are your returners, essentially? Yeah, and coverage was pretty miserable at times, too. Yes. And actually, here's here's what I will say. We haven't really talked too much about the new hires. I'm excited to see, um, and I, I before I even get to that, I totally agree about the specialists. I thought those guys played really well. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But how about just having – Joe Lorig here and Matt Pallage here, two guys who have been two of the better special teams coordinators in the country coming in to lead a special teams unit, which at times was really pretty bad. I mean, even kind of down to the end of think about the onside kick against Oregon state where you're just not ready. You think about the return against Utah at the end, right before the end of the half. And there was, there was some very frustrating coverage and kind of return sort of stuff that took place throughout the last two years in special teams. So I'm excited to have some people here who I don't want to say Bobby Williams wasn't an expert at it, but I don't think he has quite the same resume or reputation as these two guys do, at least as young coaches to come in and kind of reinvigorate some things in special teams. Cause I thought, yeah, the specialists were great. I don't have any questions on that. Very little return success this whole season. And then in coverage at times it was pretty spotty. So um, those are a couple of things I'm excited about is just kind of seeing how it's restructured, but back to, to Cam, I mean, what a, what a cool year, what a cool story this was, you know, we talked about Crocker's late season kind of emergence. There are a couple of guys on this team that were not highly thought of by the fan base coming into the season that really proved the fan base wrong. And I will say, I will include myself in the broader context of fan base because I was very concerned and critical of Camden Lewis being the kicker too. When the season started, I, was, I think we all were Eric. You weren't the only one. I think I know I wasn't. We, everybody was confused. Everybody was kind of going, "What?" And he went out and performed really well. And if you take a wait, I know he missed three kicks against the and you know those Utah losses, but other than that, he's perfect. Um, not a great kickoff specialist. That'll be a thing to mess around with. They, they did make a change notably in the in the Alamo Bowl with Will Hutchinson kicking off. But Lewis is a leg. You know, you've got that back. And Tom Snee, man, that guy, extremely consistent. Um, you know, directionally has always been good. 
the distance on his punts, I thought, really took a step up. I know from an average perspective, it's about a wash from 2020. But, you know, there were games where he flipped the field position. And I think having both those guys back, again, is big. You know, you, you know, you, you, Oregon has had a really hard time. Matt and I, we know this. We talk about this on the podcast. Those listening who have been Oregon fans for a while. Oregon has had a very hard time finding consistent play at place kicker and punter over the years. And, in fact, some missed kicks and extra points here and there probably cost Oregon some chances to, to compete for bigger things. I mean, there have been seasons where you've missed kicks at the end of games that if you make the kick, you might have had a chance to play for a championship or, or at least you further your opportunity for that. So those guys play can't be overlooked. And I thought those those I thought the specialists were strong. To me, it's more what can you get out of the, the, the coverage and return units, which are below average from a Pac-12 perspective across the board. And I'm encouraged because, again, Oregon has – this is the part that's been frustrating about those kind of stats – Oregon has the athletes, without question, to be one of the better coverage units or to have one yes. of the better return units. It just hasn't materialized the last two years. So under Lorig and College and, and company now that are taking over, I'm, I mean, I guess, optimistic, enthused by the idea of actually having good special teams at Oregon because that's not been something that's really been the case for a minute. Oregon has historically had coaching staffs where it's not just one coach coaching. Um, special teams. Everyone kind of dips their hand into it. But I think what makes this staff unique and what you touched on is they have two different coaches coming here from previous stops where special teams were attached to their title. Um, I think that says something. I think that tells you Dan Lanning views this as an equal to the offense and defense. There will be a lot more attention. There will not be, there'll be more eyeballs. There'll, there'll be more ideas thrown at this unit. And I'm excited like you. I mean, you look, you're you're the resident special teams geek on this on this podcast. Yeah. Um, we all know that. But even even me, I'm excited to see just kind of what gets dialed up. What kind of improvements do we see? Because while we did see improvements in 2021 at some positions individually, some units collectively were not good and were flat out bad. And then on top of that, I think there were the last couple of seasons just poor management from the coaching level on special teams. And so I'm just simply excited to see new ideas, new faces, more attention devoted to special teams and the success that we could see from it. Yeah. And just one thought on that before we send this one out, do you think about what made part of what made Oregon so special under Chip Kelly and, you know, a little bit under Mark Helfrich was, Think about the return guys they had, whether it yeah. was Willis Harris or DeAnthony Thomas. And I know Mikhail Wright had moments as a freshman in 19, but the last two years was pretty absent. I don't have any doubts that a Seven McGee or a Chris Hudson or I know Jeffrey Bossa, by the way, was a was a highly regarded return guy out of Utah coming in. I don't think he probably has him do that again, but like I don't have any doubts these players are capable of it. They just I don't feel like we're put in maximum positions to ever really do much with it the last two years. And I am excited by the idea of having Oregon become once again a team that can really threaten an opponent with its return game. And, and shoot, I should I shouldn't overlooked um, either Javon Holland or Ugo Amadi. So this 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 even goes further than just the Mark Helfrich, you know, run up there. Even under Willie Taggart in early years under um, Mark Cristobal, you saw it. Just the last two years though, you were devoid of kind of that component from the return game. You didn't have big returns. You didn't have touchdowns. You didn't have many returns that really set you up in opposing field, you know, in, in the opponent field position. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that some of the talent Oregon has and some of the explosiveness is able to, you know, kind of transition into um, some success on some long returns, because that was, again, such a big component of Oregon's success over the years of flipping a game with a kickoff or a punt return. And we just didn't see that the last two seasons. And I, I think that, the makings are in place for that to be the case in, in 22 and beyond with the new staff and the, and the players they have. I think in the totality, Eric, I think there's a lot to be excited about with this team. Um, I think they are by far a top 25 preseason team going into the year. I don't think they're going to be a, the, the Pac-12 favorites, but I think it's very easily and understandable and, and, Look, there may be some Huskies or some Ute fans or USC fans or Beaver fans that listen to this show. It's not it's not homerish to look at this team and, and say they are probably the Pac-12 North favorite um, going into the 2022 season. Um, 
uh, Utah should and will probably be the, the overall favorite absolutely for the Pac-12 Pac championship. But I, I think it's fair to say that this is a team where a top 15 finish in the country is, is certainly possible. And 10 wins is certainly possible. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that this team wins its third Pac-12 championship in four years. I, I don't think they're the favorites, but would it blow your mind if this team went on to, to win the Pac-12 championship in 2022? I, I think they have the talent for that. No, I, no, definitely not mind blown. I think that would be, to me, about a year early, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, and just in part because I think you have to be realistic with coaching transitions, and there's yeah. some ups and downs. And these are new coaches, a lot of them which haven't been in these positions before. We've talked about it. Landing's first time as a head coach. Um, pa uh, not Pallage, uh, Dillingham's first year as an offensive coordinator calling the plays. You know, even a, I think Pallage is being promoted to a co-defensive coordinator role. He hadn't had that title before. I mean, there's just kind of new play, new faces and new, and new spots. And how do they – I mean, I think you have to expect some ups and downs with regard to that. But absolutely, no, I, the, the ceiling for this team can still be very, very high. And, you know, there's no doubt that they can compete and win a conference championship. And shoot, you know, if everything clicks and they split – I think they have, you know, you're going to expect them to lose probably to Georgia. But if they're able to beat BYU and then maybe take care of some stuff in conference, they can they can be in position to play in a Rose Bowl. And even if they lose the conference championship game, maybe they play well enough to to have an outside shot of being in a New Year's Six. Like, I don't think that's totally out of the realm of possibility at all. And, um, but that's going to take kind of best case scenario. And then yes. we'll talk on Friday about why there should be some maybe hesitancy there. But I don't think you can look at this team and just say, wow, they finished 2021 really crappy. This 2022 season is going to be terrible. A lot of the components that were in play, place there, I think, are, have kind of shifted. And we'll see what happens. This offseason is going to be huge. And these next couple months are going to be huge. And I'm, I'm frankly really excited to kind of see what this team and what this program looks like in spring ball, which is going to get here before we know it. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we'll be back later this week when we dive into just our concerns because, look, uh, we both are very optimistic for this team, um, but there comes with that some serious questions that will need to be answered. So we'll dive into just the roster that Oregon has currently constructed and the holes and the concerns that the Ducks will have to figure out between now and the 2022 football season. Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks.